Welcome to the Football by Football Podcast. Let's do it. Well, that's better. <laughs> Match Adam here, welcoming you back to the Real Thing Patriots Podcast. We're on after this big Falcons win for the Patriots. There's plenty of of good stuff to talk about. It's not certainly the end of the story. We know we're just here finishing up uh, week seven and moving forward here into a a big game with the Chargers before you go to the bye week. But uh, there's certainly plenty to smile about. Can't see the smiles through the microphone, (laughs) but uh, they are there. Uh, I think in part because uh, this has obviously been a a much maligned defense and the defense steps up big on the biggest stage. Uh, I think obviously if you were one of those Patriots fans lucky enough to be in in Gillette Stadium the other evening, um, it it was a pretty charged environment uh, then. And I want that to come through the, the microphone here today as well because, you know, it hadn't been that way the last few home games. And I think that's important. Obviously, as a, as a former player, you really, really appreciate, you know, the fact that you play at Gillette, that you play here in Foxborough in New England, a place that's tough to play. And I hadn't had that feel for a while. You know, a lot of groaning and moaning and sort of murmurs through the place and, and quiet talk, uh, you know, in that Carolina game specifically. And, you know, the Chiefs game, even back to that, all the excitement of opening day, coming out with a, a with a very pretty performance. So, you know, and I'm not sort of deriding the fact that it hasn't been a great environment when you play poorly. You don't usually get <laughs> a lot of a lot of great fan support, and that's understandable. But this is really sort of the first moment for me where it felt like championship team, championship environment. Clearly, I'm not putting them in the Super Bowl right now during an October conversation, but that was your first glimpse of what it can be like. Um, before we dive into the specifics of this Falcons game, I think it's I think it's pretty important here to to sort of big picture acknowledge that. Uh, the, the different styles of games, the different ways these things can go down, uh, and that we're now into a stretch here with this Patriots offense that uh, I still kind of look at like sort of a, I don't know, like a bubbling volcano kind of thing. Like there's this thing at some point is going to explode. There's just so, so much talent out there, so many different ways to, to sort of formulate a play and, and find a yard. And we, we're just kind of getting into the creative aspect with Josh McDaniels. He's, he's starting to kind of figure out what he's got, and that, and that takes time. I mean, I think I'm really anxious to see sort of his play call sheet and what it looks like in December relative to now. So, And I bring that up because we're now in a stretch here with the Tampa game, the Jets game, and now the nice one in Atlanta where you're not seeing explosive offensive performances. I think it was 19 in the uh, in the Bucks game. The Jets game was a, a, a low 20s number, whatever it was. Uh, and, uh, you know, this Falcons game, only two offensive touchdowns, I believe. You know, a, a few short field goals there by Guskowski, and that's, that's making up your total. But, uh, you know, it hasn't been like this, you know, default, put 30 on the board, assume it'll be there, try to get the others offense to uh, the other team's offense to catch that 30 that hasn't been the case and uh, I don't know I I think as we 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 evaluate this Falcons game here a little more deeply it's important to sort of recognize the style preference change and and I think that's important you're in a game here now where the the Patriots actually ran for over 160 yards uh, well over 30 carries uh, with the whole full group and you know when you bring up something like that you should probably have the box score in front of you I didn't Um, but yeah I mean I, I think 
the the style pushes the style choices you make. In other words, playing more fullback snaps. You know, getting uh, getting James Devlin in there quite a bit. Having some of the packages where you don't have you know four or five wide receivers on the field. There was more of that in this Atlanta game than I recall seeing in some of the others. So, uh, whoa! I, I simply bring that up to point out that there. This team is making decisions upon how they want to approach people based upon, you know, what Belichick's always said, what he, what he thinks can win the game for them. And I'm I'm probably as much to blame as anyone for sort of directing the conversation to the you're going to have offense explosion every week, every week, every week because of who you've got. I thought this was a particular week where I saw some of the choices say, oh, that's going to shorten the game. Oh, that's going to that's gonna pull the clock back. Oh, that's not going to provide necessarily as many explosive plays. Uh, but... I think there was still a healthy respect that at any moment, you know, Atlanta's offense might be a little bit like that same uh, volcano we're talking about waiting for, for it to explode for the Patriots. So um, anyway, I just think it's really important to to acknowledge that the Patriots are playing winning football right now, but I think there's more from a production standpoint that you'll find from this offense, although some of the muted output last week was by design, all I say that, and and not finishing a couple of those red zone drives. That's not by design. They obviously want to punch that in, and we know Tommy is uh, Mr. Brady. Excuse me, is uh, is uh, is pissed about that, and rightfully so. They want to punch it in each and every time. So let's dive in here to the particulars of the game. Uh, it was a you know that we don't want this to be just a a tongue bath for for an hour on on the on the Falcons. We'll shorten it up and kind of keep to the the handful of big things that I think came out of the game that that I know people were having questions about on Twitter, uh things that, you know, may have kind of flashed by in the quickness of a game and you want to know a little more about it. I've I've got about half a dozen of those here. We'll run through those and then we'll dive into some Chargers talk. Now, uh, I'll I'll tease this for later, but our guest this week on the show in relation to the Chargers is actually a, a former Patriots player, Rich Orange. Uh, Penn State guy, big offensive lineman dude that uh, was here with the Patriots for for three years and then went on to, I believe, a stop in Kansas City and then finished his career uh, out out in San Diego. Now works in uh, in the San Diego area doing radio for these Chargers. So he's a perfect guest to have. He knows the Patriots way and all that stuff, uh, but then also has pretty good perspective out there covering that team. So we'll get into Rich here uh, later on in the show, but First and foremost, let's dive into this Falcons thing. So, first drive there for the Patriots there was a blown sack, uh, which very nearly got Tom Brady killed. Uh, hyperbole there, but it was a huge hit. And I think there's probably a lot of people that groaned and thought, what the hell? I groaned and said, what the hell? And I remember checking that play and saying, okay, go back and find out what the heck was wrong with that one. I, I, it, it's there are There's a distinct difference that I want sort of – uh, fans, observers of this game that may not have played it to to sort of understand are, are, are two different things. When you have the correct person, uh, you know, you have a blocker for every guy like you, you expect to, and, uh, you know, they lose the block and then someone pops through. That's a much different situation than an unblocked guy that nearly decapitates your quarterback. So, this game actually had a couple of these situations. Uh, well, one where it was straight blown blown protection, uh, and another where you know they didn't play a game uh, a pass rush game uh, as as good as you'd like to. And we'll, we'll get into that a little more a little more later. But on this first one, uh, it's something called Deuce on. So I, I think that 
you know, again, I don't want to get too much in the weeds here to confuse people, but Dusan is important to why this thing happened and why you saw your, your quarterback that you love so much get hit so hard. Uh, do, why I say Dusan means two tight ends are in the game, uh, so you only have one running back, and those the two tight ends for the Patriots are both on the ball. Uh, and so Dusan is uh, any kind of these two tight end formations where both tight ends are actually playing the role of true tight ends. They're both attached to the formation. They've both got their hand on the ground. Uh, they look like, you know, end of the line guy, like almost like a, another offensive tackle that the Patriots were doing that, which is an old, you know, that was my era of offense, you know, two tight ends on the ball, two wide receivers spread opposite uh, one another, and then a single back in the backfield it might be in gun next to him or in Brady or the quarterback, or whatever might be under center, but that's a real symmetry, basic formation. And when you get in those kind of sets, that's when other teams play regular defense. And regular defense means, you know, like the regular 3-4 stuff or 4-3, but seven-man boxes. And if they choose to, and uh, and the Falcons did in this case, bring an extra guy down. So you almost have eight-man box. It's almost like a daring you to, uh, you know, daring you to throw over the top of this kind of thing. Um, and I think part of that was that the, we, the, the Falcons knew that the Patriots are going to come in and try to establish the run game. They've been talking about that a little bit. There's been signs of it on tape. So the notion of coming out in that particular formation early, first series, I think sent the signal that, hey, you know, they're going to tr- come out here and, and, and show a, a completely symmetrical balance formation and try to run at us. So they brought down extra defenders, and I, it screwed the count up for the for the Patriots' office line, offensive line. So I don't know the exact uh, you know mechanics of calling out protections uh, that they're that they're doing these days because I know it's changed with Tom over the years. You've got David Anders in there now. I believe this is his third season, so he's a vet by all by all measures, and he's you know obviously played a ton of games and he's done done a great job. So I don't know specifically as, I, as I'm going through this if, hey, David called out the wrong whatever. you know, Or we all know that Brady calls out the mic and all that. But a lot of times the protection comes from the sideline call. Uh, it, it tells you the way we're going to protect it. And then they turn it a certain way based upon some of those pre-snap calls. In the day, back in the day, you know, I, I know that like Dan Copen would get heavily involved in that. I know that, you know, uh, some of the guys that come after him as well. I don't know where they're at with David. So the only reason I bring that up is because I'm not exactly certain when some guy gets cut free and it's not blocked correctly, you know, who, who is really at fault. It might be the quarterback. It might be, but uh, I don't know that specifically. But in this case, you know that there was a big mistake because there was simply an unblocked guy and they had enough guys to pick him up. So what happens is they actually rush five. Uh, so they rush five people, and the Patriots have that deuce on thing, but both of the tight ends release. So if both tight ends, uh, free release, like straight off the ball, they're both out into the pass pattern, and the back goes and free releases as well. So any chance or option to, to sort of have an extra blocker are gone. Back, both tight ends, boom, they're gone. So all you have is five to block, five to rush. And on the right side of the offensive line, they ended up with three guys only blocking two. And what they did is uh, Joe Tooney, the left guard for the Patriots, popped out of his, you know, it's, it's sometimes called pop protection. There's other names for it. But instead of just blocking what's in front of him, he jumps out of his stance and then is sort of guarding behind the center to his right. Remember, he's the left guard. So they did some sort of goofy pop-out protection and then ended up short one guy on the left side. Pop can work, but you have to have everyone picked up. If there's only five blockers, you cannot have double teams when they're bringing five people, obviously. So whatever the exact error was that they made, five came, and the, it, it, which should have made it five single one-on-one blocks. They didn't have that. So 
uh, on the other on the side to to braze back to his blind side. They block down, uh, which is you know means that soldiers taking the guy right over him. The center's got what's over him, and all of a sudden you're short the guy outside because Tooney's turned to the other side. So I, again, I, I those are a lot of details weeds that I gave you, basically just to let you know that. It was a blown cover. It was a blown protection. So sometimes these things happen, and that might be, you know, a conversation with Scar when they come back on the sideline and say, "Man, we can't do that. We got to block this thing. Uh, we're going to fan both sides, like you know, or fan one direction, or slide the protection one direction, basically just to make sure go one on one all the way across the board. And let's not get too cute. Uh, but these are the kind of things that pop up when you start seeing more traditional run sets. This that kind of thing would never happen if they're doing spread plays over and over again because spread's just more basic, right? You just usually getting four down rushers and you just block them, right? But that didn't happen in this case, so that was a little bit of a special situation, first and foremost from what the Patriots are showing offensively, and second to how they try to protect it, and it didn't work. So got to get that tuned up. We'll, we'll see how they respond. I mean, I'm sure that took some uh, – there was a tongue lashing that went on there the, on the sideline, I'm sure, and then maybe meetings during the week to say, hey, man, we can't – it's one thing to get beat. It's another thing to just completely let a guy go that, that gets a free shot on, on our 40-year-old quarterback. So that can be a problem. But, again, it's just so we emphasize this point, no one – got physically beaten there. That was a mental error by someone. Um, so now moving forward here, you move to the defensive series. Uh, I, I was tweeting about this. Uh, it's it's certainly nothing personal. I'm kind of half cheering for the guy. I, I know what it's like to be a guy that comes into a new situation. And I'm talking about Cassius Marsh here. I'm talking about a guy that, you know, you, you spent the first few years of your career in another place. Uh, you get traded or released, but in this situation traded. Uh, and all of a sudden you're on a new team on the other coast. You don't know anyone. Uh, you get a little heat publicly from some stuff, uh, but you've also done some really good things too. And people are noticing those less and just paying attention to your, to your screw ups. Uh, coach Belichick came out and, and defended him quite a bit this week. I don't know if you call it defended him, but tried to provide explanation and made the analogy that he's doing some work comparable to what Rob Nankovich did. Now, Rob was playing much higher level, obviously, especially, you know, as he, as he had more years here. Uh, Rob was a tremendous edge setter, a, a, a motor guy. He's a bigger, stronger guy than than Marsh. But to the point that Bel- Belichick's making, there's a lot asked of Marsh. He has to hold edges and pass rush and have some drop responsibility and stuff that it sounds like is new for this guy. You know, it's not something he was being asked to do much in Seattle. So he's in his own little transition stage. And trust me, when you're learning a new position in the NFL and you didn't get camp to do it, you just kind of get airlifted and drop off. There's going to be mistakes, so that's that's not unusual. And you know, I, I obviously my timeline fills up with people saying he sucks or other people saying he should be cut, and and I think that's ridiculous. So I'm as much as anything about here to point out some of the mistakes he made, but also to point out that there's clearly some ability there. This guy can play, uh, but he's kind of going through that rough rough stages of mistakes which everyone notices, and then all his good stuff not getting the accolades that, that may deserve as well. So, you know, obviously we know he, he blocked the, the field goal, and that's a huge play in the game. You take points off the board or keep them off the board, you're doing big work. But uh, one of the things that came up here was his edge awareness as a rusher. And on this particular play, you all remember this, the fourth down, uh, the, the decision for Matt Ryan to go for it on fourth down uh, with the Falcons' offense to go for it on fourth down, down Dan Quinn making that kind of oddball call there that early in the game. But uh, prior to that, I, I, I'm stepping on my own feet here, but prior to that, there was actually a third down play where Cassius Marsh is a stand-up guy and you have uh, some receivers flexed just outside of you. Now, on these issues, I can I can sort of speak freely because it's, this, it's a position I played, so I kind of know that when you have, or the way they coach it anyway, that when you have 
a human outside of you and you're the edge player, you really have to be reticent. You have to sort of have your, your blinders have to come off. You have to be aware of everything going on around you because if there's a dude that close to you outside of you, he's probably trying to, he, there's a chance he could be blocking down on you. There's, you know, there's also a chance he could be free releasing to run around. There's a chance he could be trying to climb to the second level to get somebody else. But there's a pretty high likelihood that he might crack you, right? Uh, so you have to be aware of that. And on a march on the third down play, which ends up being like a huge, like a negative, uh, I'm sorry, this is the third down play that preceded the the other thing we'll talk about here in a second, but Marsh's edge awareness wasn't great, right? He got, it was a toss play. Uh, he got himself cracked. He actually ended up on the inside of the tackle. So, you know, almost basically shuffled and thrown down two gaps other than the one he was supposed to be in, being an edge guy. Uh, so, you know, it, it just sort of was like, and it ends up being actually a really good play for the defense. People flew a uh, flow to the ball. There was a nice uh, negative run. I think I might even been Van Noy on that one, but a good, the, 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 even though he got beaten badly on his block, other stuff around him happened. Well, they do good, but it was the first thing that said, Ooh, wait a minute. This guy's edge awareness isn't quite there yet. And he's not quite as refined as you'd, you'd want in that job. Let's just keep an eye on him. So next play fourth down scenario, we all talked about that big Matt Ryan scramble ends up, uh, two yards short of quarterback depth. Now that's important because when a quarterback drops back, we talk about this a lot. You never want to be upfield past the quarterback, but you also don't want to be making inside moves against the tackle. If you haven't gotten yet to quarterback depth, I'm just speaking in general terms. There's, there's obviously going to be special situations where it might make sense, but on this particular one, Marsh had tried a power rush and, you know, you got fourth here and, and a, a good chunk of yardage to go. So, you really just don't want to let him out. You know, you don't want to let him have a freebie and scramble for it. And on this particular play, play Cassius Marsh tried a power rush. Uh, and when the power rush, when I say power rush, it's usually you're, you're more down the middle of the tackle. You know, you're trying to just knock him back. You're trying to bench press him, essentially, quads and, and doing sort of a full body kind of uh, extension into the dude to knock him back, get him on his heels, power him into the quarterback. Then you have to release and be able to make a tackle. We tried the the press. He tried the, the power move down the middle. It didn't work. And what got him in trouble is then he countered. And his counter wasn't back to the outside, which would have been smarter because he wasn't yet to quarterback depth. He was two yards short. So quarterback say quarterback's back at eight yards or something like that from the line of scrimmage of his drop. And Marsh is pressing this guy at six. So there's still space behind him. Now, at that moment, when the when, when you lose on the press, you got to either just reset and try to press again or, or you have to work the edge right up until the point you go past the quarterback. He swam back inside. So what happened with Marsh on that? You lose the power. It happens. Every you know, it's about a fifty fifty proposition on blocks of these guys anyway. They're pros too. But the what got him in trouble is he swung back to the inside. So a lot of people thought he was being held. I think I tweeted at that on some stuff, but what what was the problem there was the decision after he was blunted to then go make an inside move. Because then he's you know, then trying to reverse out of it and just catch Ryan after he's behind. But that it's too late by then. So they should not call. You usually you're not going to get that. You're not going to get a holding call then. Because once you've made an inside move, you're kind of put yourself out of position unless you just blow by and get a freebie. And that didn't happen. So anyway, just something to keep an eye on with that player. Obviously I'm not the guy here advocating to hate on him or, you know, to be, 
to be down on a dude, but more just to say, hey, that's a position that the the technique needs to get better, the attention to detail needs to get better. But the grand scheme of the player has, has been pretty good. There's other times he makes some plays in this game, and we'll, we'll, we'll maybe touch on those later if we happen to hit them. But um, anyway, ends up with a poor play. It was what it was. But later on, uh, Jonathan Jones with a really tight cover on third down. This kind of gets them out of that, uh, gets them out of that series. It's extended by the Ryan scramble, but. Then they actually break the pocket to the right side again as well. So that's a little bit on Dietrich Wise there for getting out leverage himself to the other side. Uh, but Matt Ryan scrambles. Now he's a right-handed dude trying to throw back across his body. And the tight coverage by Jonathan Jones. Man, has that dude been a revelation. So I think it's really important to sort of touch on him. Jonathan Bonamosi has been getting a lot of talk. We talked about him last week. Publicly, he's getting a lot of shine, as he should, because he has to step in in the absence of Gilmore and in the absence of Rowe. But in the midst of all this, a guy that was playing whether or not those guys were here has been Jonathan Jones, and that dude is really competitive. He kind of has – it's almost become passe. It's kinda, I think it's just like the, the phrase we go to when we don't know how to describe something that's good and, and secondary play. It's kind of like Malcolm Butler. It, 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 Jonathan has that sort of competitiveness. There's sort of a rascal to him. You're sort of a, you know, a guy that's just a scrappy – always fighting, always, even when he falls out of phase in a route, he gets back into them. He just has a competitiveness that, that you want to see your players have. And to have Bonamosi and Jones and and uh, Malcolm on the field all at the same time, it's it's uh, the skill sets aren't identical, but the personalities a little bit are, at least the football personalities, to put it that way. So Jones deserves sort of a tip of the cap. That was, that was a big spot. They'd given up the bad fourth down conversion. And he comes up with a an extended play where usually as an extend, you kind of expect some separation to start happening. For him to be right in the hip of a high-level player like that, make a play, get a PBU, force a field goal, that then Marsh blocks, really big spot there. So with Marsh's situation on the field goal block, uh, it's hard to kind of, you know, Marsh, when I, when I see him on the field, uh, when I've seen him around the locker room, uh, He's a thinner framed guy, so like not super wide hipped. So he'll never be a real heavy guy. He's he's got some nice quicks to him. You can tell he's athletic. Uh, but what he did on this play is he just dove in the gap. He you know got a nice get off, got through the gap, flattened really well. Technique's nice. He sticks his hands out, uh, gets flat. You know doesn't doesn't like you know uh, put goalposts up with his arms and, and have it go through. Does a nice job of picking the ball. Just just a great job there, and and, and a very important play. Um, so, you know, it was sort of a redemptive kind of moment. You kind of feel better for him because I know what it's like to, to feel, you know, I've been the outside linebacker or the defensive end to, to a left side and felt a guy get outside of me and have the conversion and your, your stomach just, you know, sinks to the floor and you're like, damn it, edge, 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 right? You say it to yourself, you know, Patricia's saying it to himself, you know, your position coach is going to be saying, you know, Bill's going to say it to you in the team meeting and you just, you're, you feel like, you feel terrible because you, you know, your job is the edge and when there isn't one and it keeps the drive alive, you feel like everything that happens after that is on you. I know the feeling, uh, but you know, so f- considering that was the situation that the Marsh was a part of or helped create for him to get back and, and cap the drive off with a field goal block, you feel good for the guy. You're like, okay, nice job. Way to come back. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's making something happen good for your team after something bad went wrong. And that's, that's the kind of guys that the, that the Patriots look for. So um, moving on here, the David Andrews uh, on the Cooks play. So I put this little note here as I was watching the game. 
I think this is really important. We there were some a lot of goofy plays in this, as I mentioned earlier. Josh McDaniels really started to kind of you know expand, you know, flap his wings a little bit here and start to show some new stuff. Now as he's figuring out who he's got, there was that goofy little I don't know. You can't call it jet sweep because there's no sweep, but jet motion kind of thing where they just timed it out where Brady taps the balls, the ball, his balls. He taps the ball forward with his hand, so it's like a small volley that is recorded as a pass. Uh, Cooks comes around. It's the play we've all seen, the little misdirection portion with the line. So they step one way, get all the defensive players to step one way, and then all of a sudden there's this fast dude out in space, and Gronk's blocking for him, and he's sort of, uh, you know, it's just a caravan into the end zone. Cool, exciting play. Uh, one thing that I did notice that, you know, because I haven't seen that particular kind of handoff before, it felt almost more like a college thing to, you know, ball security is such a freaky thing in the NFL, like, you know, doing some of this weirder trick stuff, you know, especially when you have an offense that already is able to score anyway, can kind of make your coach nervous. Or So you wanted this the kind of thing that if they were going to run in a game, I can guarantee you they run it a lot in practice. They've they've done that full-speed motion with a little tap thing over and over and over again, I would presume, uh, because you don't want to screw that up. You do, and you, un, you unseat everything else you got going on that's good. So the idea that that did work is you know reps between Brady and Cooks pulling it off. But the, the little secret portion here is the, the David Andrews spot. So, you know, centers, when, when they snap uh, for shotgun, they got a pretty wide target area. You know, you, you maybe a couple feet up, a couple feet vertically, a couple feet horizontally. There's, there's, there's a good spot you can do that. But the, I don't think the quarterback expects that he's just going to put his hand up and not move and you'll hit your, his hand. That's more like long snapper stuff when you're snapping it a little different way. The, the 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 short snap stuff, you know, you you send it up into an area. You don't want to be the, the quarterback sort of moving or you know having to strain to get it, but it, it has to be in a general area. Well, on this one, it has to hit the spot, almost like a like a long snapper would, because if say if Brady took that at his waist, well then you can't do this little tap thing, you know, or if it's up high at his head, yeah, the tap doesn't really work, you know, or you, you risk tapping it wildly and it's a fumble right or if it's at your feet you, well, you can't tap it up you know so i guess sort of the, the sneaky little inside part to this is that had to be a perfect snap and that doesn't always happen so tip of the cap there to david andrews i mean he's a third leg to pulling this thing off put it right where tom essentially doesn't move his hands he's just able to bat it forward so that's that's something that uh, that takes practice and and by virtue of pulling off one of those practice plays and getting big yards in the game you you open up the playbook to more of those kind of things you strain a defense like san diego to now have to to pay real careful attention and, and figure out if you're going to be doing that stuff or something you know something completely different to them. So you've just strained someone's practice routine, and that's always a good thing. Um, Adam Butler sack, just love it. Uh, moving on to sort of the next thing I had here as a marker, Adam Butler, continue to be active. We say it each and every week. Guy, uh, guy just dips, rips, gets under his guy. Nice little power move there over the guard. Tackle can't come back in and get involved. It's just a nice individual move, and you've got you've now got an explosive interior guy that can move, and he's making plays. The Patriots really, really hit one there with Adam Butler. Getting an undrafted free agent in that's that's contributing the way that guy is, is is big. The snap counts he's getting for an undrafted guy year one, big. He's been positive. And I love the little <laughs> the, the high step the celebration that he does after. That was great. So uh, late moving on here, we're back now into an offensive series. Cooks makes a nice back shoulder throw. I wanted to or back shoulder catch, excuse me. Downfield route instead of the deep comeback stuff back to the sideline. We're now doing the sort of fade where he just spins in the route uh, and for a 
air quotes, back shoulder thingy. Uh, so the reason I wanted to point that right out, about route out to y'all is because we've been talking about Brandon throughout the year in different, in different ways. Uh, the route tree that he has had successful catches on to me expanded by a couple different plays this week. So the back shoulder element, we haven't seen a lot of that. So that's again, a new expansion. If you're a defensive back that's studying this guy and saying, Oh no. Okay. He's caught, 10 different kind of routes now they've used him 10 different ways it makes it for a little harder study makes for a harder guy to prepare for so that's certainly a good thing and I, again i still think that much like the whole you know patriots office being like a like a volcano that's not yet exploded i i still feel that way about brandon cooks and you go down and look at the box scores or you look at his season stats and he's he's up there in the top few wide receivers in the league for for his his cumulative production but I still feel like we haven't seen because maybe it's because we haven't seen that single ten catch game, a double digit catch game, or a catch game over eight kind of thing with over a hundred yards. It's been just more consistent production. He's made a few plays, three to five ish, every week all season long. And you know, you don't get mad about consistency. That's a pretty darn good thing. So uh, again, the Brandon Cook show expanded a little bit this week with some new kind of plays. Uh, a new kind of connections there between Tom and him. That's that's not a bad thing. I really do think we're going to get later in the season, and and there'll be there there's going to be some of these just full packages. Him getting his target number up to close to ten, and Brandon Cooks being maybe the the lead option for this offense. I I, I think that's completely plausible, especially because even as dangerous as your tight end is, he has an injury history. I, you you may not want to go wall to wall with him. So. Uh, we will see, but uh, good week there for Brandon Cooks, obviously. So the White, the James White touchdown, I uh, wanted to touch on this for you guys a little bit because I thought the placement of the ball by Brady was so freaking good. And I credit the, the, the guys that were doing the broadcast. They, they touched on this a little bit, but I wanted to kind of give you a perspective of a guy who would have to cover James in that situation and how hard it is if the quarterback does what Brady does. Now he's running a little angle route, angle route, you know, simply means like a, you know, like a, not necessarily a sharp 45, but some sort of angle where you head out and then come back in. Right. Uh, so those are tough because as James White starts to go out in your car and you're guarding the guy, you don't know if he's not going to start out and then just go flat and go out, run out to the flat. So you, you kind of have to tempo you, but you have to hurry a little bit too. So tempo and hurry at the same time, there's, they seem contradictory, but what it is, is you start to advance towards him thinking he might be going to the flats and then when he just puts on the brake so quickly and cuts back across your face that's the angle portion there's an and or where you don't know which it's going to be the flat or the angle and he runs that angle so well because his stop starts so great but anyway james gets back into that route now the important part here is i believe it was uh, without checking the numbers i just from remembering the the highlight i remember i i believe it was a, a defensive back that was on him if if may, maybe not a corner but at least a safety but in other words a more agile guy than a linebacker matching that route what was cool was he's running the angle back to the middle of the field, and you're down deep low in the red zone. So this is sort of a, a gotta-have-it kind of part of the field. What I really appreciated there, because I've been the linebacker who's trying to close to that route. I've, I've, you've started to widen. The, the angle happens. He plants his ground foot in the ground. He comes back. And there is this little moment where he knew that was his route and you didn't, where it opens up for a millisecond and then you pursue. And if the ball is right on him or the ball is slightly behind him, you can actually catch up in that moment. If he leads him with the ball and you didn't, you know, you weren't spot on on the angle, you'll never make the play. 
And even in those moments where maybe you read the angle pretty decently and you stuck tight to it, if the quarterback puts the ball away from you and it forces you to go back through the back to get it, uh, you're going to get a penalty. So what was really cool there by Brady is he puts it down, I don't know, like a foot or two off the ground and away from the defensive back. So that ball placement made that play. And, and James is obviously a short dude. He's able to go to the ground really easily and quickly and get down there and dig that thing out. But, it, you know, it's the kind of thing that goes in your box score is two or three-yard touchdown pass or five or six. I don't know where the hell it was. But the point is it may feel like it's less impressive because it's not as long. It didn't travel 20 yards in the air, 40 or whatever it was. But that placement is so rare to be able to put it exactly where it needed to be uh, to keep it away from the defender. And also because you've got a shorter guy who, you know, the guy defending him might be more long-armed. Uh, if you put it high or you put it up on a shoulder pad down in that area of the field, if it's not caught cleanly, it bounces up off the pad in the air and you're risking a turnover. So it, it got it was a smart sequence to keep it from being a turnover, but to also keep it low and away from the defensive back. It's like a it's like an unguardable play if you do it right and you have the right guy pulling the trigger and Brady is that dude. So moving on, uh, one last thought here, sort of on the offensive stuff uh, that I think is really important because you we saw one of these games last week where we saw a lot of devil at fullback, you saw a lot of run game stuff, over thirty plus carries, over one hundred and sixty yards, all four backs produce. Those kinds of games, everyone won't be like that. You know, you know, Coach Belichick and and Josh will opt for some of those where it's more of a 80-20 split on run, and you know it's more spread. It just depends on who they, how they feel about the team across from them. But in weeks like last one, where they make the commitment and they play more of those personnel groups and they play more, we run more traditional run stuff, not just draws in in, in spread. They're more traditional. Got a fullback in front of you, lead plays and power plays, and and uh, you know wham if they do much more of that anymore. But anyway, the point is that the the creative run stuff, right? The back traditional creative run stuff. When they do that, this is what happens next. That wide-open Chris Hogan uh, uh, in cut. He's a big crosser off play action. I love that stuff. I jokingly say I get juicy about it all the time on on Twitter. It is exactly how I feel because I remember sort of the yin and yang portion to football that sometime is gone when we do this new spread all the time stuff. I love it when we get back into the and or element that if, you know, if, is it? This or is it that? The is it this or is it that element's gone when you play spread football. It's just gone. Even when they are run plays, it's like, all right, fine, we'll just rally to it. It's just a draw. But I love the bringing back of the more traditional sets because I know it strains defenses so much. They're not allowed to just sit back there and flow and just try to hit. You are frozen as a defender because you don't know for the first second or two of the play if it's run or pass. And the Chris Hogan, big crosser, he looks like he's just wide open. Why? It's because they were in one of those sets. There's a fullback. There's eye backs, you know, like a Big Ten kind of thing, eye backs. And hard sell play action down in the line. And when Tommy pulls it back up, looks down the field, yeah, that's when the crossers have no one on them. If that literally the same uh, pass pattern is run by the eligibles that are out there and you don't have the eye backs and you don't have sort of the look and feel of potential direct run, you don't get Hogan open like that. You don't. It's a, it's a direct function of, of what they were doing in the core that got the receiver to where he was as he was. So I love that, and I hope we see more of it. It's cool to know. It's good to know that with these four backs, they really feel comfortable running these 
regular offensive sets with any of them. You know, it's not like, oh, we're going to go a little more regular here. Got to get Gillisley, right? Uh, we've seen Deion Lewis be in the regular traditional role with a fullback and be very, very, very su- successful. Rex Burkhead, not so much last week, but we've seen him in the past be used in that role. And he did have some productive plays last week as well. So I kind of half expect his role increase. But when I make predictions like that, uh, Zolak and I were, were joking about Scott Zolak, who does a yeah, obviously the uh, the Patriots pregame broadcast there on uh, on ninety eight five uh, with Bob Sochi. But uh, when Zoe was Zoe was sort of joking about this, he's like, you know what, uh, we we if you start talking about one bat getting more runs, well, where's it coming from? You know, it's like, oh, this guy's role is going to increase. Well, there's four of them. <laughs> it can only increase so much. So there's the, we're going to have this quandary weekend. We got trying to figure out which of the four is going to get more touches, and maybe there is no right answer. Maybe there'll never be a, a ten plus touch guy for any of these four guys. And and maybe in the end, that's a good thing. It it sort of makes you uh, you know, it's like your insurance. It's like a standing insurance policy. It's four dudes to get you to the end line. And uh, I really like how they've constructed this team. All four of those guys can do stuff for them. So uh, we're just about done here uh, with, excuse me, one last one. I wanted to touch on Malcolm Butler because I thought he had such a nice game. Malcolm Butler, uh, really tight on that third down, getting a PBU deep in the red zone. It was a stop that they got. Tight against Julio Jones running the back line. What, a, what I mean, what a great job. If you're going to talk about one guy who, who can sort of, you know, stallion his way you know it's three or four quick strides off the back line when you're in a tight goal line situation he's got such incredible length he's like he's like gronk long you know uh but for malcolm to catch up get back in the hip and make a play against that guy uh to to get it to fourth down which was then stopped on a run play the next down that's just a big time play i mean it's just big time it's big time play against a big time player now we know who julio gets his later with a garbage touchdown later in the game but i think on that play you, you get a greater appreciation of how good he was and how when Malcolm was stopping him earlier in the game, what he was what he was overcoming. So tip of the cap, Malcolm Butler's back, playing great, playing at a high level, and it, it's so good for him to, to for him to be stepping up in those weeks where some of the other top guys like Gilmore and Rowe aren't even available. So, uh, you know, great week by him, uh, impressive in his tackling, his aggressiveness. He's just – his game is rounding back into form, and it's great to see. Uh, so Matt Ryan on a, on a long run late in the game. This sort of precipitated the, uh, the Jones TD – uh, this was the too far up the field, and uh, man, it just it feels like I'm hammering on this Marsh guy too much. I don't mean for that to be the case, but I just have my notes here from what I saw in plays, and unfortunately, he was he was involved in another one. Um, when I say too far up the field, I wanted to explain this in a better detail. I tweet about this a lot. Uh, what it means is is very simply, if you can draw a horizontal line, kind of how the, the TV broadcast will put that yellow line to show you where the where the first down marker is. If you could use one of those yellow first down markers, maybe make it a different color and extend it, you know, horizontally from the feet of the quarterback, the back foot of his of his plant when he's when he's going into his drop back. You you take that back foot and run a a horizontal line from sideline to sideline. That's the line that pass rushers are told not to go beyond. You can maybe plant, put a plant foot just to turn the corner just on the other side of the line, but they want you bending it back in in a hurry. So because they really don't want you behind the quarterback. We see Brady just brush that off time and time again. Oh, I, I beat the tackle. Did you? If you're at nine or ten yards and the quarterback's stepping up and completing something, you didn't beat him. So it's just the difference between a drill and real live football. So 
In this particular one where uh, the drive was kept alive, Matt Ryan went on another long run. Uh, ends up being a bigger, pretty significant chunk of their their rushing yards. I think Atlanta did end up over a hundred, but uh, in part it was these two these two runs uh, by Matt Ryan were were a big contributing factor to that number. Um, on this play, it's usually the way you can check if a guy was right or not. Uh, when the quarterback starts to take off and scramble, where's the defensive end at? And in this particular case, Marsh's plant foot, the outside foot that you turn on, was at ten yards. And 10 is way too much. Uh, usually the coaching staff is going to want you to turn the corner at 7, maybe 8, especially if the quarterback is stepping up and taking off. You just you just can't be at 10. You know if guys are rushing at 10. It's usually, well, I'll say this for me, when I had to rush and I wasn't very good at it, I always tell you guys that, uh, I would be able to get, I would go to 10. Why? Because I can't turn the corner at 6, the really good ones. The, the really good ones are getting off better and they're covering more ground with those first couple strides and they're turning the corner at 6 or 7 yards. Uh, you, the guys who go to 10, you like me because I, I don't turn the corner so well. I'm, I'm fast for a big guy, but I don't, I don't have the real fluid hips. So I'm not getting around the corner. I tend to meander up the field too far to be able to turn it. So that's the reason they coach that because, and that's the reason we talk about that being so important because you, you need to be turning the corner around the tackle in front of the quarterback so he can see you. If you're turning corners behind him, he doesn't care. Steps up, completes passes. On that one, Marsh's plant foot hits at the 10. It's the, you know, I've heard it coached or told it a number of ways in the different places I've been, but you can think of it as sort of a, you know, like a, a pole, like a tent pole or something that when that foot goes in the ground, drive a stake through your foot, you can't, it has to plant there and it can't be at a depth deeper than the quarterback's back foot. If it is, it's almost certain that you know he's going to be able to get away from you, or you'll be chasing him back down the pocket and risk him completing something while you're on your way. So that's not good. It has to get better. Hopefully, I gave you enough little anecdotes and details there to to help you watch it more. You know, as a sort of more educated viewer to say, well, when it was wrong and when it was not. Now, if a guy's getting held, that's one thing. But if he's getting held behind the quarterback, or if he's getting held a little bit. You know, and he's he's jumped inside of him to to where he's out leveraged himself before the quarterback takes off. When the grabs happen, then officials sometimes don't call that. It's because it's bailing out. You you rush to a, a poor spot anyway. Though the they're more apt to give you the call if you rush really well, uh, get him beat and then get grabbed. So anyway, just keep an eye on that. Not in relation to one particular guy, just in general. When you're watching Flowers, when you're watching Wise, when you're watching Marsh. When you're watching the dudes get edge rushing opportunities, watch for that outside plant leg when they make the turn, uh, when they make the decision to just power back into the tackle because they don't want to get lost in the rush. Um, last thing here, Deion Lewis deserves a mention. Running strong, running traditional. He's not just a pass back. I think we already knew that. He's had a pretty long resume of doing other things so far. But love to see the run it out sort of portion at the end of the game where it was, some of it was Gillisley, some of it was Lewis. It's not pass back stuff. It's with a fullback in front of him. It's busting through the line. It's Lewis breaking tackles, which you know shows the strength uh, with the ACL rehab is back. The legs are back. The legs are strong. I actually think we've seen less of the just neck breaking, uh, you know, dramatic kinetic cut kind of stuff that he became so known for a couple of years ago. And, you know, he still has some shake to him. Obviously he still loses people that way. I think the power has been a little bit surprising. So that, that can be a function of the rehab. That can be a function of rebuilding the leg and find out this guy's got some, some thickness to him. He can make his way through a block and that's, or excuse me, a tackle attempt. And that's, that's very encouraging. Again, I, I kind of come out of this going into the chargers talk and th- saying that's four good backs. 
you know, that any of the four I can roll with and, and you can get some stuff done, especially with the, the rest of the offensive personnel that the Patriots have. And as promised off the top, let's transition now into this conversation with Rich Ornberger, uh, former Penn State offensive lineman, fourth round draft pick of the Patriots in 2009. Here with the team for three years, uh, part of a Super Bowl team. Uh, Rich now lives out on the West Coast, uh, does radio, something called the Mark and Rich Show, Extra 1360, Fox Sports San Diego. He knows that team well, and he also knows the Patriots system well, uh, part of the Patriots way back in the day. So let's welcome on Rich. Uh, and first thing off the top, I got to ask you, Rich. So, you know, you spent your, your a few years up here in Foxborough. So, you know, you're in the club. So where were you sort of spending your time? Where did you set roots down here the few years you were around? I spent my first two seasons living in Foxborough. A lot of the guys did, um, you know, just sort of kind of getting acclimated to the Patriot way, as it were. Uh, I really, uh, I really just wanted to be close to work, so I lived, exactly, uh, I exactly. lived down the way a little bit. Yeah, uh, probably about fifteen minutes from the stadium. And then my third season, I actually moved up to Boston. I was living, you know, in a, an apartment building, kind of nearby the Charles River, in between Mass General and the Garden. And it was just kind of great to be in the city, great walking city, as everybody out there knows, and uh, just had an absolute blast. And that year we went to the Super Bowl. So it was uh, it was definitely an electric time to be a New England Patriot. Wow. I, I didn't realize you did the deal. There aren't a lot of guys that would do that. I think when I played, Izzo had a place up there. I'm sure you played with Larry there for a year or so at the end of his career. Uh, Welker had a place, I believe, up in the city. Uh, not a lot of guys. So the year that you were there, were there other guys still making that commute? Or it's, it's a rare thing because he can usually Larry's, Larry used to advocate for it because he said he was always opposite traffic. Is, is that, did it work that way for you with the opposite commute? You know, kind of. It, it, it definitely weighed on me because in, in season, you're you're competing with Red Sox traffic and uh, Celtics traffic, well, Bruins traffic too. I mean, you can really hit an intersection at one point where if there are two games, baseball, hockey or basketball going on at the same time you could you could be stuck in three hours of traffic coming back from the facility and you know how you grind film as a patriot (laughs) there were times where you absolutely you didn't have a choice but to show uh, or to 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 be stuck in the the gridlock but yeah spend time with welker he had his condo still uh in, in in boston at that time tom obviously lived up there or has continued to live up there his whole career um, I think we were the only three commuting at the time. But, yeah, I mean, I miss the area. I'll tell you what, this time of year in the Northeast, uh, you can't replicate it anywhere. San Diego's nice, but it, it isn't nice like a fall, a crisp fall day, you know, in New England. Yeah, my old buddy Steve Neal is my teammate for years. He's out there in San Diego area. He's not actually in San Diego proper, but he's he's in the vicinity. And I've, I've, we stopped out there and visited uh, a few summers ago. And yeah, he'd say, you know, it's like, it's basically, it tastes gorgeous, but it's exactly like today for the next 365 days. Not that it's a bad thing. It's a good thing, but you certainly don't, don't see the seasons. And they, him and uh, Jody would talk about, you know, missing it a little bit. You know, they love their San Diego, no question, but it, it certainly is different. Okay. Well, enough of the chit chat. We got to dive into some football here. And, and immediately when, you know, we've been doing this throughout the season and trying to reach out to, to guys that played in the market that, that the Patriots are now facing, obviously I thought you'd be a perfect, a perfect guy to have on because you played for both of these teams. So um, I, I, one thing I, 
I don't know if you ever remember this speech with Coach Belichick. I certainly got it several times. There would always be that team on the schedule where he would sort of fall over himself to impress upon the guys that you need to get up to speed. You don't know the Chargers, you know, because you haven't played them that much in the last several seasons. With us, it was the Bears. It was a Bears year where he was just he, – he could not – sell it hard enough that that these guys are amazing. You know, you haven't seen the Chicago Bears and what the Bears can do. And I kind of looked down the schedule before the season began. I thought, you know what? San Diego has has the potential to be that team, a team that I don't think the Patriots have faced a ton by reputation. Everyone knows Phillip Rivers, some of the star players, the Bosa's and the Ingrams and, uh, you know, Melvin Gordon, the name guys you know. But Fill in the cracks for us. What do we not know? Who are some of the guys that shine for San Diego that may not be household names? Well, you know, offensively, look no further than the receivers, and and I call him a receiver because he is definitely a danger. Um, Hunter Henry plays the tight end position, but if you like how Antonio Gates played that position, you're going to love Hunter Henry. Uh, falling directly in line with number 85. He wears 86, Henry does. Um, he is one of these guys who is a sure-handed pass catcher. He's physical at the line of scrimmage, doesn't mind getting his nose dirty, so they can keep him on the field the entire game. And so having that ability, avail yourself uh, uh, tight end access basically with any formation. And then, you know, so think like a, a Gronk light. Uh, that would be how I describe Hunter Henry. All right. And then um, at the receiver, uh, Keenan Allen, really impressive guy. Uh, he's been putting up great numbers when he's been healthy. Unfortunately, this is the first season in the past three years that he's made it past the midpoint of the year. Uh, he had a lacerated kidney uh, uh, stop him two years ago. Uh, game eight against the Baltimore Ravens, couldn't finish the game. And then last year he tore his ACL uh, game one against the Kansas City Chiefs, and that took him out for the entire season, obviously. So this is the first time he's really been healthy, and he's one of Philip Rivers' favorite targets. So I would say those are the two guys that you may not hear uh, all that often that really do tilt the field for the Chargers. And defensively, you mentioned the whole show up front with Bosa and Ingram, but a guy in the middle who does a lot of the dirty work, who I absolutely love. I loved competing against him when he played for the Seahawks throughout my career, and I really like what he's done with this group. It's a younger defense, but he's a veteran presence in the middle. Think like a Vince Wilfork type is mm-hmm. is Meebane. And Brandon yeah. Meebane, he's the trash collector, man. He takes on double teams to let these linebackers run free, and he does a really good job leading a young defense. Well, interestingly enough, you know, I, I hammered on the San Diego point just sort of jokingly off the front end. But one of my curiosities here, outside, just stepping out football for outside of football for a few seconds, I, I know there have been clearly a lot of distractions for these guys. You know, you make the move. Uh, I would presume a lot of the veterans still have places near San Diego, or do they all move to LA? Maybe rent. How has that sort of transition from just like a pure player standpoint in review affected them, or has it not? Has it been an issue at all for these guys trying to sort of live in a bit of a vagrant kind of deal? Yeah, I think it has had an effect, and it definitely stresses family and home life. When you sign as a free agent, the obvious impact it has on your family is you're going to be moving. It's going to be a new city. It's going to be a new team. Your family's going to have to get, get acclimated live in a new place, pick new schools. 
Well, think about this. You know, you're under contract. Maybe you signed a longer-term deal. Every single man on that roster had to come home the day that the Spanos family decided to move the team to Los Angeles and say, wow, yeah, we're moving. And it, 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 we, it wasn't up to us this time, so here we go. Right. And, yeah, I realize players get released, and, and it's kind of a vagrant lifestyle anyways. But this, this definitely, I think, impacted the earlier part of the season, losing mm. some close games. Uh, the media scrutiny was at a higher pitch than it had ever been when they were down here in San Diego. So, yeah, I, I talking to a lot of the players, the personal accounts across the board, this wasn't, this wasn't that great of an offseason because everything was a little bit off kilter, a little bit off balance. They practiced in San Diego until their lease at a city-owned facility came up, and then they moved into uh, an Orange County college, uh, a junior college, to, to do their camp practices until finally their, their brand-new facilities were ready to play in in Costa Mesa, and they moved into those. So they practiced in three different places. I mean, aside from the fact that they're playing in a brand-new stadium in the subhubs that were brand-new to them, uh, this right. season. So it's been a lot of changes and it's all been happening pretty fast. I think it's had an effect. Well, oddly enough, Rich, this is sort of, you know, when you, when you're out here in New England, obviously there's, there's a, a sense of entitlement's a wrong word, but I think just an expectation that they'll be around the top each and every year. I mean, I think they've, they've earned that. But one of the things that, you know, I know this when they pop up on the schedule that there'll be a, a, a heightened local concern because of past history. You know, like the Ravens used to be a team like that. So so regardless of how the Ravens been playing, they see Ravens on the schedule, antennas go up. I think if you look at the list of teams that, that usually fits the bill, uh, well, for a New England fan base at least, uh, you'd probably say the Giants, and that's because of the Super Bowl history. You played in one of those. Uh, the, the Raiders are another team more recently because of, you know, Derek Carr kind of starting to fling it a little bit, and they were, you know, a, a borderline top AFC-type team that are in a battle there out in the West. And then the Broncos is another team just because there's been the back-and-forth history with those three. The reason I bring them up is because, that's three in a row that the Chargers have actually knocked off. They had the slow start that you referenced, and but been competitive really throughout the year. And I think that's the thing Coach ha- Belichick's hammering this week. Yeah, they had the one-two score game with the Chiefs, but everything down the line here has been super competitive, and they're starting to win. Where sort of in your view is that team sitting as they as they travel now across the country? I think they are building a confidence that probably hasn't been there for the past bunch of years. Uh, I don't know if it's the added media scrutiny. I don't know if it's the fact that they're finally starting to click after rebuilding the core of this team and focusing a lot of the weapons around Phillip Rivers. Um, But it's taken some time for this team to figure out how to win at the end of games. And that's what you've seen in, in basically three weeks. This past week with standing when they shut out the Denver Broncos at StubHub Center in L.A., you know, so, yeah, I think it's a team that's finally starting to hit stride with some confidence. And it's, it may be poor timing with the Patriots because I think, obviously, they had their struggles early on. Might feel like they've got things figured out, especially after a big win against uh, the Super Bowl rematch in the Falcons. So, yeah, like you said, though, Matt, we know Bill. And if there's anything that he knows is there can be a letdown after a big win as much as a big loss. So you really need to refocus your attention when you're going against the Chargers because 
Think about a wounded animal. Sometimes they're more dangerous. And that's how I describe the Chargers franchise in general. They feel probably cornered. Right now, right. this is a national conversation about how this isn't working in their new home. So I imagine right. there's a lot more vigilance on their side to prove something. And what what better team to sort of mark your calendar and put a huge target on than the, the returning Super Bowl champs, the New England Patriots. So, yeah, this is this is one of those kind of gotcha games that could turn out that way if the guys in uh, in Foxborough aren't ready. I love it. That's a great point. And I, I think you can clearly hear the Patriot in you that, you know, you're sort of, you're, you're throwing warning flags up everywhere, you know, just to make certain that everyone's prepared. And San Diego does certainly fit the bill. I mean, a quarterback that can fling it, uh, he distributes pretty well from what I've seen. I, the one thing I had noticed is it was difficult to discern a pattern. You know, there hasn't been like a, you know, one guy that's, you know, exponentially out in front of the others as far as targets. You know, I think Melvin Ingram, I presume, is kind of a big thing of what they do. Belichick spent some time this week still pumping up Antonio Gates, although we kind of presume his role is is much less. If yeah, so now sort of transitioning here into your role as an offensive lineman, uh, that perspective anyway. When you think about the the, I almost did it, Sam. <laughs> the the LA Chargers <laughs> run run game with Melvin Gordon. Uh, the reason I, I take this angle is I was actually working at the Big Ten. I know you're a Penn State guy. I was working at the Big Ten Network for a couple years, uh, you know, early in my sort of retirement career. And I caught the James White, Melvin Gordon years. And it's interesting that these guys are playing one another. That was a two-headed backfield back in the day. Wisconsin was very effective. I know Melvin had a little bit of a bump to start his career, but then has found sort of the more effective legs. He seems to be, you know, one of the better ones that are all around the league. What sort of run scheme stuff from an O-line perspective works best with him? How is he best utilized? You know, it's funny. I think he needs, he needs some room to work. I think he's not one of those running backs who can kind of pitter-patter his feet and be effective. Like a Le'Veon Bell, think about the patience that you see on Sundays when the Pittsburgh Steelers are running the ball. He can come to the line of scrimmage and then decide after a second or two, and, and seriously, that long, where to take the football and then have success. Melvin Gordon is definitely more of a guy who needs to plant his foot and make one cut. And so when the offensive line isn't blocking particularly well, he struggles. He really does. Uh, he's a he's a, a plenty strong back. He's plenty mobile. He's plenty strong. He's plenty big enough. He just really struggles when the offensive line isn't giving him room. So when he has that space to work, he seems to be more effective. Now, as a pass-catching threat, something that you didn't really uh, tag him with coming out of Wisconsin because they were so run-heavy and run-dominant right. is the fact that he's actually got some pretty soft hands. You get him out there on screens or as an outlet pat, uh, you know, things break down. He, he can make people miss in, in the open in the open field, and he has he has enough speed to break away. So that's really helped him uh, get rolling here. It's not necessarily rushes. It's touches that are important to his game. Get the ball in his hand with room, and he'll make people miss enough that you can pile up some yardage. As you look at these guys, again, sort of making the difficult trip, they're charged, they're motivated, they've got reasons. Who doesn't when you sort of see New England on the schedule? Are there any vulnerabilities? Maybe that's the wrong word, but things going on relative to the roster that are concerns with them. Injuries, banged up in places, guys moving around. Uh, New England's had their fair amount of that. I can sort of shoot that back at you once I get your answer. But anything with with the Chargers that sort of is an issue that will need to be resolved by game day? 
Yeah, actually, they have a problem at left guard. All of a sudden, uh, Matt Slauson, who was a longtime New York Jet, spent a little time in Chicago before coming to the San Diego Chargers. Uh, he was playing center all last year. They transitioned him to left guard because they have an undrafted free agent named Trevor Pulley uh, playing the center position now, and he just tore his biceps. Uh, this is Slauson did, and that happened last game against the Broncos. They brought in their third-round draft pick from this year, offensive lineman named Dan Feeney, and he was just backing up three positions. But now it looks like he's going to be the starter at, at left guard unless they shake up the, the picture. So across the board on the offensive line, you've had a, a, a revolving door in the interior and exterior. Right now you have Russell Okun, who is a first-year player at left tackle, starting next to left guard Dan Feeney, who was just drafted this year. And then mm. Trevor Pulley's your center, who's an undrafted uh, free agent from last year. Right guard Kenny Wiggins, uh, probably the most veteran presence as far as being a charger goes, and he's a journeyman at right guard doing a great job but still hasn't had a ton of game experience. And then your right tackle, Joe Barksdale, is actually kind of in and then out. He's had a foot, so maybe he starts this week. Maybe it's another backup in there. It's going to be a little bit of a patchwork situation. So I would say that's the position group to watch going into the game against the Patriots. Well, oddly enough, that's sort of uh... – they'll have some mirrored question marks that we'll sort of both be watching the inactives list on Sunday because the Patriots got Malcolm Brown a little banged up their former first rounder from Texas. So because you and I are doing this show, we're taping this show on a Tuesday, we're kind of, we're kind of in the dark with, with availabilities and where people will be in practice reports, but two guys that got banged up will sort of, you know, be the, be the across drums in this situation because Dante Hightower is the other one, a uh, shoulder banged up with him now. So they had a couple bodies go down that might be across from some other inexperienced guys. So how they shuffle that all, I guess we'll, we'll all sort of learn on the fly. Um, and then also for the Patriots, this is, you know, you talked about Keenan Allen. I know he can be a bit of a game breaker health, always a, an issue with him, but you know, he's flying at this point and because Philip can fling it, this sort of sets up as sort of a you know a second bite at the apple, I guess, for the Patriots. Another big, tall, strong, you know, uh, pro style kind of quarterback like they saw a week ago with Matt Ryan, and really a bevy of targets that you can kind of send it four or five different places. So um, the the reason I bring that up is because you know there's two guys down: Stephon Gilmore and Eric Rowe, two of the start, two of the two of the guys that are in the top three cornerback positions missed a week ago. We have no idea on their availability again. So, um, again, as you exit out the door here, we, we wrap this up. Tell me how the Chargers get it done. What's sort of their formula of success to come out here and, and steal a victory from the Pats? I think they need to, to catch an early lead. And um, like every single team that's ever played against Tom Brady, is you need to get them off the spot. You need to make sure that he isn't comfortable in the pocket, get him chasing ghosts. I mean, that's been the rubric of success against the Patriots. And a team you mentioned earlier in our conversation here, the Baltimore Ravens, historically have done that the best, and that's the reason why they've been able to knock the offense off kilter uh, and then, and then get, establish a strong running game early on and control the clock. The less time the Patriots have with the ball, the less damage they can do to you. So I would say the three most important things is ball possession, getting Brady off his spot, and grabbing that early lead so you can really have the Patriots chasing. If they're able to do that, and, and we, we both know having played there, Gillette Stadium, hard stadium to, 
to get the crowd out of it because they're so active. But if you can quiet down that, that, that factor, then you may have success. But that's a tall order because the Pats look like they're rolling right now. Yeah, you really hit the nail on the head there, all three of the nails. Uh, it's a lot of the stuff we actually talk about week to week is vulnerabilities. And, uh, you know, Bosa's an easy topic. I didn't I didn't ask you to spend a bunch of time on him, but because he doesn't seem to me as, as just a straight-up field guy. He's sort of a tweener that can play the big five technique role or he can pop out in a four-man line and be an edge guy too. And I think those kinds of personalities can give Tom problems because they're long, tall, and they'll make the inside move on the tackle. They'll press the tackle. They're not they're not up the field past the quarterback five yards every time because he doesn't care about that stuff. So when you see those kind of guys on the schedule, those are the kind of guys that, that tend to be in, in his purview, and that can be an issue. So, all right, Rich, awesome stuff. And for everyone out there, Mark and Rich Show uh, for Rich Hornberger here, Extra 1360 out there in Fox Sports, uh, Fox Sports San Diego, kicking ass, did a great segment here with us. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on, and uh, take care, man. Uh, Best of luck to you out there. Hey, thanks so much, man. Thanks for having me on. Some really great stuff there by Rich Ornberger, and I I think you guys can all understand just just the, the short segment that we did together Guy knows his stuff. He's a sharp guy. Uh, really, really great control on the air, and you can tell that uh, he clearly works in media out there and has, has done this before. He knows what he's talking about. He uh, can break it down with the best of them, and uh, was really pleased to have a guy that has some perspective, really, with both teams to help give a little seed there to what we're going to see from these Chargers. So I had some parting thoughts of my own. Uh, I wanted to let him sort of fill us in the most as, as best he could on the Chargers. But there were a few things that I noticed from tape. And actually, uh, full disclosure here, at the time that I'd had that, I'd taped that conversation with Rich. I hadn't yet watched the Chargers film, but now I have. And I want to try to sort of relay what I think is being said. My best guess, my educated guess, on what Coach Belichick is is saying to these guys about the Chargers. Take a drink of coffee here, a little pause. Ugh, tastes so good when it hits the lips. Now, moving on, uh, it would be Travis Benjamin. That, that was going to be my big point here. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's easy to say, oh, Chargers, and then you know, devolve into a conversation about Phillip Rivers, uh, go into a conversation about you know, Antonio Gates, who's a small part of the offense now, go into a conversation about the move. We had that with, with Rich. Um, you know, all the, the anecdotal stuff is interesting. You know, you're going to shower praise on Philip Rivers. That's understandable. But I think you really got to dig around on the edge of this team to find out what they're all about. Philip's been there forever, but this is a different team from years earlier. Uh, they, they've, they've changed themselves some. some. And the, the longer I looked at them, I was like, you know what? From a week to week, it, it's hard to pinpoint on who their guy is going to be. Is it going to be Keenan Allen in the passing game? Is it going to be Travis Benjamin? Is it going to be a bigger Gordon Day? Uh, is it going to be this... Uh, Eckler, I think, is his name, a number 30, the running back for the Chargers. He's more of their pass-catching guy. Uh, he's used uh, pretty frequently. Uh, you know, he's got a role there. Um, is it going to be, you know, just – I think, well, for people out there that play fantasy football, I mean, I know it's kind of the, the way you, you reintroduce a big part of the crowd that doesn't care about some of the other nuts and bolts that I do. But I, I think that that part's reflected in, in San Diego. They're a real tough egg to crack to figure out who they're going to use. Uh, because week to week, they don't have a guy that just dominates in targets. You know, one, one week, Hunter Henry is getting a lot more balls at the tight end position. So other weeks where gate crops back in and, you know, get some targets. Um, so they're, they're a tough prepare, uh, but they're a tough prepare where the, if you don't get it right, 
the, the results, I'm sorry, the threat hasn't been, been as high. This isn't a team that's put up 30 yet. So to me, that's kind of the benchmark. That you're getting it done if you go put 30 on another team. They've just been in a lot of tough contests, physical, smart, win them down their stretch. Uh, if they had a little better field goal kicking, uh, which they've they've cycled through that this year, they would uh, have at least another win or two on the on the docket. So you kind of have to look at them that way. What did the team do? The specialist may have changed the result. So um, you know, I, I think that this team sits in a place where you see the three and four, and you may have eh, you know, for them. But uh, you watch them on tape, and you're like, oh, okay, oh. Okay, I get it now. I see it. Brandon Meebane, oh, he's a beast. Oh, this new guy, McCain, wow, the thin dude can dip and rip. That guy gets around the corner. He's he's pretty sweet. And the fact that they have Ingram and they have Bosa, it's like, oh, man, they got three dudes. And, you know, this is this is a team that's pretty loaded. So the reason I brought Benjamin up off the front, I'm, I'm just trying to take you inside a team meeting room with the Patriots. Uh, Coach Belichick has so much ammunition from really the last couple of weeks, but the easiest one was just a week ago at Denver. Uh, the 21 went zero game. Uh, two of the scores are by Travis Benjamin. There's certainly plenty of weeks out there where Travis Benjamin doesn't score at all, but he brings one back on a punt return and he gets involved with the catch and run big play touchdown as a wide receiver. And that he's really kind of the guy in the offense, Travis Benjamin, that is kind of the, you know, the, the punt returner by trade kind of field guy, explosive play guy, big play guy. But is he going to catch a ball a week at all this week, or is he going to catch two that go for 80? You know, He's that guy, and Belichick has always historically done a great job of, of building those guys up just to try to make sure you're completely aware of them. Letting them slip for one or two plays can ruin a game. So Travis Benjamin is that guy uh, for San Diego, and, and, he, and he merits mention, uh, more mention because of what he just did in the last week. I think that will prevent him from being overlooked, uh, prevent the Patriots from, you know, doing something silly and letting one slip with that guy. Like the Tyree Kill thing where you just, you know, you play it poorly and correctly and you just over the top and blowing by everyone. This is a guy that's capable of similar stuff. So he uh, he earned himself some extra attention this week by having a big week last week against the Broncos. So keep an eye on him. Um, the, I meant the Eckler guy, uh, the guy that I mentioned, number 30 uh, in the running game. I mentioned him for, for this much because if you play fantasy football, and you, you know you're only passively aware of some of these teams on the West Coast. You might just think Melvin, 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 Melvin. Eckler gets enough of a of, of of a role, enough of a snap count to where you really need to be aware of him as well. He's going to get touches. He's going to be involved heavily in protection. He's going to be a screen game guy, a check down guy. Uh, he'll he'll get some plays. So uh, and I I just remember watching and you have to kind of oh wait wait they they switch backs. That's not Gordon. And you're thinking oh that's a nice run. That's oh that was a nice explosive play. So they've really got a couple guys back there that can do stuff for him they're not as deep as Patriots with the four thing but who is that's that's just a weird back makeup but the backs are a big consistent week week thing for this group and importantly so because you know the like I said it's been so inconsistent with a wide receiver group uh you know there aren't a, there isn't Keenan Allen's the one guy you think might get 10 catches in 100 yards he's he's the guy that has that kind of you know catch gobbler kind of profile to him but it hasn't been that way every week so on him, we have to wait and see, but it's really going to be more of a defend the whole team kind of deal. You know, you got two tight ends that are accomplished, you got two backs that are pretty accomplished, you got a group of wide receivers with some explosive elements and some ability, and a good a good trigger man. So it's it's a pretty 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 good mix. This is above average offense, no no question. Um, I'm going to get here to the defensive side of the ball, and I think to sort of finish things out with a talk on the Chargers, I think it's important to note what having really good players does for the scheme that you want to run. 
it gives you it gives you more options. And I think that's where Houston's kind of in that place now, at least prior to all the injuries, where you had uh, Whitney Merciless and you had uh, obviously uh, you know Watt before he gets hurt, uh, but. You know, they Davian Clowney's there now is sort of the solo dude. But when it was one of three, or when there's all three guys up there and flying around and making plays, you put one bull in the middle of the three the three hyenas, and they get after you, right? So it's it makes for a really nice mix. And I'm watching San Diego, and I'm thinking this is probably as close as I remember to to since the since you watch film on on the Texans, where they've got. Everyone can disrupt, right? You almost, it feels, the rush feels like a wave, you know, of the offensive lineman backing up into the, into the lap of the quarterback. So because of this young guy, McCain, you'll see more, is McCain or McLean? I don't know if I'm blowing that, but he's, he's an interesting guy. He looks a little thinnish on film, but he has a nice dip and rip to him. Uh, where, what I mean by that is he gets underneath sort of the pads of the tackles. You know, he's got a really good hip bend, something this guy that you're listening to right now did not have. Uh, so I just think keep an eye, if you're watching this game, uh, to to the bend of Marcus Cannon, the bend of Nate Solder. Can they get can they get low and keep these guys from going up underneath them and coming out the other side? Obviously with Bosa, what makes this guy rare, I mean why he was taken so high in the draft, is because he is – He's uniquely talented, and then he can play the power or speed game. Uh, and I, I should have mentioned that earlier. McLean is actually listed as a linebacker, but he's one of those slash dudes. He wears the number 40. You'll see him, and you're like, is that a safety? What is that? But uh, that's the McLean guy, and it is – is. Oh, damn it, I did it again. McCain, excuse me. We'll get it right here by game day. But anyway, back to Bosa. The reason Bosa is is so unique and so special is he's really tall. You know, he's a he's a – an over six four guy, I believe he's like six five. I don't know if you list him at six six, but he's tall. He's got really, really, really long arms. Uh, they list him. They just list him at six five. So he's six five two seventy. So he's mid sized enough. Watts a little heavier guy actually than Bosa. Watts a guy that's more like in the two eighty five range. Uh, so this Bosa is tall, is long, but super powerful. And the reason I I think he's can be special is because he's just as comfortable popping out to the outside uh, and coming off the edge from a speed guy, just beating hands, using that super length to reach around to tackle and bat a ball out. So this is a week where, where Brady really needs to be on point with his own ball possession. You know, you cannot leave it hanging out. Bosa has these like octopus arms, reaches out and just bats something down. But the the other great element to him is, like I said, he can win outside but also inside. So Bosa's a, a guy that does really good with counter moves. He's got a really great motor. He runs back down the pocket well. He's a big sack there against Trevor Simeon in the in the in the Broncos game where you know he just he got beat twice and reset himself really a third time to run back down the pocket and get a huge sack and. You know, ragdoll uh, Simeon. So, uh, you know, I, I just think Bosa is the kind of guy that merits a lot of attention, comparable to a Watt, where I, I don't think we'll see a lot of just solo on him. And the thing that's tough, much like Watt back in the day, is that they'll they'll move him around. You'll see Bosa on the right side, the left side, even inside occasionally, and that's because Melvin Ingram and McCain are are are. are I guess flexible enough themselves to play either side. So they like to move Bosa around, not just let, you know, one tackle with one back chipping on him over and over and over again. Or, you know, picking your slide to the protection, like sending the double uh with the unguarded the un the unblocked guy 
two Bosa each time. They they move him around enough to where you can't just zone in on him. So really smart uh, scheme stuff there. Uh, Brandon Mabane, uh, Mebane, uh, as as Rich uh, said, is is a brick. And it was fun after he'd brought him up to go back and watch and say, oh. That's the guy that doesn't get moved. Uh, we talked about uh, we talked about him back when he was Seahawks when we were first doing the FBF podcast years ago. Uh, guy still got it, so that's a tough group there. So uh, the Patriots are going to have a. They, I'm not going to say they're going to struggle, but I think they've got a big, a big, big task ahead of them to get past these guys. Now, as I finish the show off here, I do want to make this point because I, I think you're reaching sort of juncture point not where you know what your team is but some of the markers about not losing more than one game per month you know that's you know you're getting here to the mid part of the season there's an opportunity to move to six and two and then get a break with the bye week yeah don't want to peter out and just end up five and three have that bad taste in your mouth as a player going into a bye week with a loss sucks you know you're gonna end up there aren't really buys anywhere quotes there's not you know there's not like a week off you just got to go work and you got to work with a bad taste in your mouth that, you know, you had a bad performance on tape. So I'm not worried about a letdown from this team. Um, they, they do do enough misdirection. Uh, Hunter Henry is a part of it. So, you know, we, we haven't talked about the, the Carolina and Houston and, and, and uh, the Chiefs stuff much recently because it's just been different kind of stuff because San Diego lives in the gun so much and they'll actually have, uh, Rivers back in the gun. The back, um, uh, let's see, the, the back will even be deeper than him. And then they'll motion stuff underneath it. So, you know, Melvin Gordon deeper than the quarterback, who's also got someone underneath him, like Hunter Henry maybe taking a handoff, maybe Benjamin taking a handoff. The jet sweep misdirection uh, from gun, multiple guys back there. That's I know it's a mouthful and it's hard to visualize, but just know that, this team throws in enough of those where I think this is the first time since you last saw Carolina that maybe you'll start to, you know, you'll see, a, they'll put a few goofy plays in there to see if the Patriots have it. So the last kind of thing that I think is really important to point out here is I think this is the first one, and maybe you can check me on Twitter if, if I'm dead wrong on this, but as I was watching it, the thought occurred to me that, you know what, the for pursuit for defensive linemen, and it's something that, that I watch because I, I just understand the physical gap between a D lineman and a linebacker that can run better on the edge when you start talking about these mobile guys. Even Matt Ryan a week ago, Matt Ryan was as fast as the, the edge people chasing him. He could run just about as well as, as Cassius Mars. He can run just about as well as Trey Flowers. He can run just about as well as – he can run better than, than Butler and, 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 and Brown and some of the guys on the inside, obviously much better than the biggest dudes like Alan Branch. But we're now getting into a situation. I think it's the first time where Philip Rivers is a little bit of a, of a concrete-footed guy. He's got he's got some athleticism. He is an older player, but I think this is the first closer to Brady as far as just he's going to run away from you. This is the guy he's not going to run away from you. This is a guy where if you if Adam Butler breaks something inside, Adam Butler Adam Butler excuse me can close and and make sacks. He can chase down Philip Rivers. This is a week where. You know, Trey Flowers absolutely can chase down uh, Philip Rivers. I think the opportunities for sacks here are, are going to be pretty high. This could be one of the higher sack weeks for the Patriots defense. I won't be surprised if that's the case, and especially because of some of the stuff that Rich Horn, uh, Ornberger touched on there. Rich was saying, that, you know, so the uncertainty they have and the experience they have all across that line. I think you couple that with a Patriots team that's got young rushers who are kind of just warm into things, and they're going to get a quarterback who's 
maybe the least mobile they've seen yet this year. It, it's, it's sort of a nice little cauldron, a nice little mix to, to have a breakout week relative to that pass rush. Uh, because I think they are a guy that they can get after with four and don't need to, to risk more, but the four can get some stuff done. So keep an eye on that. Anyhow, that is all we have for this week's show. So go into that game, enjoy yourself. One o'clock game, I'm, I'm very thankful for that. Uh, but you, you know, hopefully you have a little more, uh, some nuggets here to watch the game a different way. Once again, thank you for checking out the Real Thing Patriots podcast. I'm Matt Chatham, your host. Continue to share this thing on all those social media spots and Facebook and in, and in Twitter. And uh, continue to invite people to the show. We're getting great numbers. I want them to be even bigger. I like growth. We all like growth. So uh, enjoy your weekend, Patriots Nation. Uh, keep at it. Your team just keeps getting better. Bye-bye now. Thanks for listening to the Football by Football podcast. Football insight by football players. Hi, Lucky. Hi, Dusty. Good night, Ned. Good night, Ned. Good night, Ned.